The Old Covenant reading for this evening is taken from the book of Exodus. Exodus chapter 34, beginning at verse 1. We'll be reading through verse 8 this evening. As I mentioned in adult Sunday school this morning, this is one of the most important passages in the entire Word of God. Exodus chapter 34, beginning at verse 1. The Word of the Lord. The Lord said to Moses, Cut for yourself two tablets of stone like the first. And I will write on the tablets the words that were on the first tablets, which you broke. Be ready by the morning, and come up in the morning to Mount Sinai, and present yourself there to me on the top of the mountain. No one shall come up with you, and let no one be seen throughout all the mountain. Let no flocks or herds graze opposite that mountain. So Moses cut two tablets of stone like the first, and he rose early in the morning and went up on Mount Sinai, as the Lord had commanded him, and took in his hand two tablets of stone. The Lord descended in the cloud and stood with him there and proclaimed the name of the Lord. The Lord passed before him and proclaimed, The Lord! The Lord, a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness, keeping steadfast love for thousands, forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin, but who will by no means clear the guilty, visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children and the children's children to the third and the fourth generation." And Moses quickly bowed his head toward the earth and worshipped. Here endeth the Old Covenant reading. The New Covenant reading is taken from the letter to the Hebrews. Hebrews chapter 8, beginning at verse 1. We'll be reading through verse 13 this evening, which is also the end of the chapter. The word of our God. Now the point in what we are saying is this. We have such a high priest, one who is seated at the right hand of the throne of the majesty in heaven, a minister in the holy places, in the true tent, but the Lord set up, not man. For every high priest is appointed to offer gifts and sacrifices. Thus it is necessary for this priest also to have something to offer. Now, if he were on earth, he would not be a priest at all, since there are priests who offer gifts according to the law. They serve a copy and a shadow of the heavenly things. For when Moses was about to erect the tent, he was instructed by God, saying, See that you make everything according to the pattern that was shown to you on the mountain. But as it is, Christ has obtained a ministry that is as much more excellent than the old as the covenant he mediates is better, since it is enacted on better promises. For if that first covenant had been faultless, there would have been no occasion to look for a second. For he finds fault with them when he says, Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will establish a new covenant with the house of Israel, And with the house of Judah, not like the covenant that I made with their fathers 
on the day when I took them by the hand to bring them out of the land of Egypt, for they did not continue in my covenant. And so I showed no concern for them, declares the Lord. For this is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel after those days, declares the Lord. I will put my laws into their minds and write them on their hearts. And I will be their God and they shall be my people. And they shall not teach each one his neighbor and each one his brother saying, Know the Lord, for they shall all know me, from the least of them to the greatest. For I will be merciful toward their iniquities and I will remember their sins no more. And speaking of a new covenant, he makes the first one obsolete. And what is becoming obsolete and growing old is ready to vanish away. Here endeth the new covenant reading. Please turn with me once again back to Exodus chapter 34, as this will be the primary portion of God's word for our evening sermon. What makes the Lord's amazing grace so absolutely amazing is that I started out as such a wretch. Amazing grace, how sweet the sound that saved a wretch like me. Uh, Let me give you an illustration. Suppose I were to tell you that a young man, we'll say he's 23, Uh, was to steal $1,000 from his parents. Now, right away, you would know he's doing something that is terribly wrong. I mean, stealing is both a sin and a crime, and it's aggravated by the fact that he's stealing from his own parents. He is, as it were, spitting on the Lord's commandment to honor your father and your mother. But what if you were to discover that this young man's parents had been tremendously loving parents, but they had poured their lives into their children, seeking to raise them in the fear and admonition of the Lord. As working-class people, they didn't have a lot of money. But when this young man got into the college of his dreams, his parents stopped taking vacations. They took on overtime at work in order to help send him to the school of his dreams. When he graduated, they even gave him some money as a down payment toward a car. What would you think about this young man then? Doesn't his ingratitude show that his sin is all the more reprehensible? Well, that's just beginning to scratch the surface of what the Israelites had done when they rebelled against God by making a golden calf. To be sure, every creature under heaven owes its creator absolute, unquestioned, and perfect obedience. That is true. And furthermore, God in his common grace causes his sun to rise and his rain to fall on the just and the unjust alike. But Israelite was not simply the object of God's common grace. They were the apple of God's eye. With an outstretched hand and a mighty arm, he had delivered them out of Egypt, out of the house of bondage. He had fed them food from heaven, right, manna. He had provided water from them, from the rock. And how did they repay God's kindness to him? At the very time when Moses is going up on Mount Sinai to receive the Ten Commandments, the covenant document, Israel grew tired of waiting. 
Israel grew tired of waiting to hear from a God that they could not see, and so they created a golden calf, and they danced around it. It was one of the most emotional and one of the most wicked worship services in all of history. The covenant had been shattered, and the people of God appeared to be under God's holy wrath and judgment. Now, to be sure, uh, the Levites do go through the camp, and they kill around 3,000 of their brothers. There is judgment here. But we all ought to be astonished by the amazing grace that God showed toward his people. Moses, after all, is interceding for them, pleading with God not to wipe them out for his own namesake. And God agrees. God grants Moses' request, but then he tells Moses something that is just horrifying. He says, I will not kill them. I will send them into the promised land, and I will send my angel before them, who will in fact give them victory. But as for me, my own presence will not go with you. Now see, if all you care about is what God could do for you, that sounds like a really good deal. But Moses is heartbroken. I mean, after all, the whole point about being God's people is being God's people. But the Lord himself would dwell in our midst. You know, the Lord has had his reasons. The Lord had said to Moses, Say to the people of Israel, You are a stiff-necked people. If for a single moment I should go up among you, I would consume you. Yet once again, Moses interceded with the Lord, pleading that the Lord himself would go with them and that he would dwell in their midst. And once again, the Lord showed them staggering mercy, declaring to Moses that this very thing you have spoken, I will do, for you have found favor in my sight, and I know you by name. And then Moses, emboldened by God's display of astonishing mercy and grace, he asks for the big one. Lord, show me your glory. We'll come back to that request in just a moment. But I want you to realize that that request, show me your glory, and what we're about to experience here, they go hand in glove with one another. This leads us to tonight's passage and three great truths about amazing grace and the law of God that will be the three main points for our evening sermon. First, amazing grace does not nullify God's law. Second, the law of God serves God's relationship with his people. And third, God's amazing grace leads us to worship. Let me give those to you once again. God's amazing grace does not nullify the law. The law of God serves God's relationship with his people. And God's amazing grace leads us to worship. We begin with the truth that the Lord's amazing grace does not nullify the law of God. Look at verses 1 through 3 with me. The Lord said to Moses, Cut for yourself two tablets of stone like the first, and I will write on the tablets the words that were on the first tablets, which you broke. Be ready by the morning, and come up in the morning to Mount Sinai, and present yourself there to me on the top of the mountain. 
No one shall come up with you and let no one be seen throughout all the mountain. Let no flocks or herds graze opposite that mountain. Uh, the Lord had established a covenant with his people. Right? It's a continuation in one sense of the covenant he made with Abraham, but he's establishing a distinct covenant, we often call it the Mosaic covenant, with the people of God as a nation as he has brought them out of Egypt. He's preparing them to go into the promised land to live as his own people. And he had given them the Ten Commandments as the stipulations for this covenant relationship. Now, we might have thought that the rebellion of the people around the golden calf would have led God to move on to plan B. You know, plan A of these commandments is just too hard. That's why Moses breaks the commandments when he comes down the mountain. Moses understands if this law is applied to this people, these people are going to be consumed. But God commands Moses, cut for yourself two tablets of stone like the first, and I will write on the tablets the words that were on the first tablets, which you broke. God doesn't go to plan B. Almighty God doesn't have a plan B. God reiterates the very same commandments that he had given to Moses the first time. We want to realize this is astonishingly good news. As Doug Stewart points out, God had decided to forgive the Israelites and accept them once again as his covenant people. He would renew his covenant with them, through which all sorts of blessings would once again be theirs. Like an employer saying to a previously dismissed employee, welcome back to the company, let me show you your workstation. Or a judge saying to a person whose punishment has been completed, you are free to go and resume your former life. God said to Moses, and through him to Israel, bring some new tablets. Let's put the covenant back in force. Do you see how that's astonishingly good news? And yet, remarkably, Christians all over the United States of America don't see it. In American Christianity, it is common for people to think the law is this horrible burden for us to bear. Rather than seeing it as this beautiful covenant document that God has established, they see the law as bad news. While the psalmist prays, Oh, how I love your law. It is my meditation all the day. American Christians tend to view the law as horribly constricting and even imagine that God's grace somehow sets God's law aside. For example, the very famous Presbyterian minister, Donald Gray Barnhouse, who's a pastor of uh, 10th Presbyterian Church in Philadelphia in the first part of the 20th century, he had this to say about the law. It was a tragic hour when the Reformation churches wrote the Ten Commandments into their creeds and catechisms and sought to bring Gentiles into bondage to a Jewish law, which was never intended either for the Gentile nations or the church. Now, when he says that, Barnhouse is simply being a good dispensationalist. That's what the entire classical dispensational system teaches. Uh, Please listen again. I want to make sure you get the force of these words. Barnhouse says, It was a tragic hour 
When the Reformation churches wrote the Ten Commandments into their creeds and catechisms and sought to bring Gentiles into bondage to Jewish law, which was never intended either for the Gentile nations or the church. And what I want you to get is not simply the technical aspects of this being wrong. I want you to catch the emotion behind it. It's not as though the Jews had this good gift that was so good for them, the law of God, but God has different gifts for us. Rather, it actually views the law of God as this terrible, constraining, judgmental thing but is a burden that we cannot bear. Beloved, that's contrary to the word of God. We ought to sing with the psalmist, Oh, how I love your law. It is my meditation all the day. I mean, of course, when we turn to the New Testament, that's precisely what we hear from Jesus and his apostles. Uh, Jesus, just a little bit later in Matthew 5 than we are in the morning sermon series, says this. Do not think that I have come to abolish the law or the prophets. I have not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. For truly I say to you, until heaven and earth pass away, not an iota, not a dot will pass from the law until all is accomplished. Therefore, whoever relaxes one of the least of these commandments and teaches others to do the same will be called least in the kingdom of heaven. But whoever does them and teaches them will be called great in the kingdom of heaven. And of course, as you think about the prophet Jeremiah looking forward to the new covenant, or God prophesying through him more literally, uh, that passage was quoted in Hebrews 8, our new covenant reading this evening. What does Jeremiah prophesy about the law? Does he say a day is coming when the law is going to be put away and you'll be freed from its burdens? No. What the Lord promises through Jeremiah is this, I will write the law on your hearts and I will be your God and you will be my people. The amazing grace that we receive in Jesus Christ does not nullify the law of God. And as Clarice pointed out in Sunday school this morning, uh, the law is holy and righteous and good. For God to water it down or take it away would be for God to take away something good from us. And your God loves you too much to do that. The amazing grace of God does not nullify the law of God. Rather, by faith, it establishes it. God's law, however, is not an end to itself. The the goal is not law. The goal is relationship with God. These are covenant words. He gives us these commandments so that we will walk with him in love and we will walk with our neighbors in love. That's primarily what the law of God does. That's why Jesus summarizes the law with the two great commandments. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength, and you shall love your neighbor as yourself. If you start focusing on the law as an end to itself, you become a legalist. You you become someone... You know, who strains out the gnats and swallows a camel. That's not what God has for us. God's law is designed to serve our relationship with him. Look at verses 4 and 5 with me. So Moses cut two tablets of stone like the first, and he rose early in the morning and went up on Mount Sinai, as the Lord had commanded him, and took in his hand two tablets of stone, 
The Lord descended in the cloud and stood with him there and proclaimed the name of the Lord. Now, what we're naturally expecting based on the buildup, you know, Moses has cut out two tablets of stone. God says, I'm going to give you these commandments again. We actually have a repetition of the very things that we saw back in Exodus 19 uh, when the commandments were first given. Moses ascends Mount Sinai again. The cloud comes down. Think about the smoke and the fire coming down in Exodus 19. There's a commandment that no one else will come up. In fact, they shouldn't even be opposite the mountain. It's the same pattern. So what are we expecting when the Lord speaks? Well, we should be expecting him to say something like this. I am the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of bondage. You shall have no other gods before me. That is, he's going to give us the Ten Commandments again. And instead the Lord says, I've come to proclaim my name. Proclaim the name of the Lord, my covenant name. Now the name of the Lord is his self-disclosure of his own character. Please look at verses 6 and 7 with me. 6 and 7. Dwayne Garrett suggests that these verses can be called the song of Yahweh's benefits and grace. I I like that. But I want to add something I think is important, because if we just have benefits and grace, we're missing something. This is a self-revelation of who God is. It is his character. He's opening that up to us. Beginning at verse 6. The Lord passed before him and proclaimed, The Lord, the Lord, a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness, keeping steadfast love for thousands, forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin, but who will by no means clear the guilty, visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children and the children's children to the third and the fourth generation. We begin with a repetition of the name Yahweh. Whenever you see Lord in all caps, that's the way, uh, by convention, the covenant name Yahweh has been translated into English. Now, why do you remember that language, the covenant name? Most commonly in Scripture, when the Lord uses the name Yahweh, it's in a covenantal context where he's entering into relationship with people or he's recalling the promises he's made covenantally to our forefathers and ultimately to Jesus Christ. So whenever you see that L-O-R-D in all caps, you ought to be asking yourself, how does this relate to God's covenant promises his stipulations, or the consequences for us if we enter into this covenant by faith. It is important to see that while the declaration that the Lord will by no means clear the guilty, which comes at the end here, is essential, it's not the main point. That is, it's a qualifier on what God's mercy and grace is. The major note here is how gracious God is, how merciful he is, how compassionate he is, how he passes over and puts away the sins of his people. Let's walk through these characteristics, these things that characterize the Lord together. What does it mean for the Lord to be merciful? Uh, This word here is actually commonly translated compassion. It's actually a slightly different feel than mercy. 
Uh, The word has the same root to it as a woman's womb. The idea here is, is God is saying, just as a woman, a mother, has a deep compassion for her nursing infant, I am like that with Israel. I am like a nursing mother in my emotional attachment to you, my people. I think it's actually pretty powerful to remember. This word suggests that God has the feelings of a mother toward Israel, and by extension toward us, the Israel of God and the New Covenant. And then we think of Isaiah 49. There the Lord tells his people this. Can a woman forget her nursing child? Well, that's unthinkable. Can a woman forget her nursing child, but she should have no compassion on the son of her womb? Even these may forget, yet I will not forget you. Behold, I have engraved you on the palms of my hands. Now, when Isaiah wrote those words, they're figurative. But we should remember that in the fullness of time, when our Lord Jesus Christ allowed his hands to be stretched out on the cross, spikes were driven through his hands, or if you prefer, through his wrists. He carries in his body the marks of how profoundly he loves you. How much does he love you? Jesus stretched out his hands and said this much. I give my life for you. The Lord is compassionate and the Lord is gracious. Now in systematic theology, we like to make nice boxy distinctions and say mercy means this, grace means this, compassion means this. I trust you realize that in ordinary language, including the language of the Bible, these terms are often used interchangeably or they overlap a great deal in meaning. And sometimes, like here, God piles them up on top of each other so we're, we're overwhelmed in a sense and we get a, 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 just a glimpse into how extraordinarily gracious our God is. Perhaps the chief distinction between compassion and grace is this. Compassion reflects the Lord's inner disposition. This is the way the Lord feels about his people. It's the way the Lord feels about you in your misery and your need like a nursing mother for her hungry infant child. But grace includes acting on your behalf. Uh, This is one of the reasons why the Bible speaks of us being saved by grace, while it does not speak of us being saved by compassion. Because grace is God acting out of his compassion. This is the way the Lord feels about you. That's compassion. What God does on your behalf, that is grace. See, thankfully, the Lord's love and compassion toward us is not limited to the Lord having warm feelings toward us. That's a temptation in American culture. People often define love in terms of, I have warm feelings. But beloved, aren't you glad that Almighty God did not stand off at a distance and have warm feelings toward us as we plummeted into hell? The Bible says this instead. God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son, that whosoever believes in him should not perish but have everlasting life. Uh, That word gave is the key to grace. In fact, you can think of grace and gift as being almost synonymous terms. One of the ways you can remember this, although I do want to say for you Greek scholars, there's different terms used here. 
But one of the ways you can remember this is by remembering Ephesians 2, verse 8. For by grace you have been saved through faith. This is not your own doing. It is the gift of God. And I trust that you can all see that in this verse, verse 8, grace and gift mean essentially the same thing. This God of compassion and grace is also slow to anger. It can actually be convicting to realize how different God is than I am in this area. Slow to anger. R. Reed Lessing, one of my very favorite Old Testament scholars, uh, reveals this truth in a somewhat lighthearted way, but I actually think his lighthearted illustration, or maybe I should say light illustration, is actually quite effective. Lessing writes, Slow to anger? That's not me, especially when I'm in a busy supermarket and I'm in a hurry. My, I gasp when I see long lines at the checkout counters. There are people to see and places to go. I don't have time to stand in a grocery line. Taking a closer look, I see that all the lines are long except one. I dart over there only to find someone with what appears to be a hundred items in their cart. And to make matters worse, it seems like they have a hundred coupons in their hand as well. I begin humming a hymn, stricken, smitten, and afflicted. Then looking up, I see the cash register has gone haywire. An assistant manager rushes to the rescue. Come on, I mutter, as ten people turn their heads toward me. And I quickly realized that what I thought was a whisper was more of a shout. Twenty minutes later, I finally get to buy my measly milk and cottage cheese, both of which by this time have gone sour. Slow to anger? Not even close. What I like about this illustration is it involves things that aren't really that significant which is a reminder that we can lose our tempers, our patience, and become frustrated even over little tiny things. And perhaps in a situation like this, even if we don't have anywhere in particular to go, we just don't want to stand in line. Beloved, aren't you glad that God isn't like that? Because even when we have serious problems and sins in our lives, even when we are falling short and not pursuing God as we should, God is slow to anger. He is patient. He is long-suffering with us. The Lord is slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness. When you think about faithfulness, faithfulness is a term that describes being dependable, reliable. You know, if you have a faithful friend... They give you your word, you can take them at their word. And even if circumstances turn such so that keeping their word is going to be costly, you say, well, I know Bob. Bob will do it anyway. That's faithful. That's reliable. But God is not just a little bit faithful. He is perfectly so. A faithful person keeps his word or her word even when it becomes inconvenient or costly to do so. And Almighty God has kept every promise he has ever made in all of recorded history. On the other hand, 
Steadfast love goes beyond mere faithfulness. If you're married, think about this for yourself. If you're married, you want a faithful spouse. But how happy would you be if your spouse was merely faithful in keeping the outward commitments they made in their marital vows out of a desire to honor marriage as an institution rather than out of love for you? Yes, I know, you can't actually do that. One of the vows is to love your, your spouse, right? I get that. What I'm saying is, if it was only a formal thing, by the way, I do sometimes talk with people who want to be seen as good husbands and good wives, and perhaps to some degree they value the institution of marriage, but they're not focused on the other person, the person God gave them to be their husband or their wife, to love them. Beloved, we don't want that mere sort of formal faithfulness We want the other person to be committed to us till death do we part, to pour our lives into one another. And God is that way. See, God's not just keeping the rules as important the rules are. God loves you. And he loves you with a steadfast love that he will never let go of. The Lord is committed with steadfast love to his people He has put his name upon us. He has betrothed us to himself. And therefore he will do whatever is necessary that we would live with him as his people forever. As we are told in the book of Lamentations, it is of the steadfast love of the Lord that we have not come to an end. His mercies are new every morning. And the Lord is announcing that he keeps his steadfast love for thousands, or perhaps actually to a thousand generations. Uh, That actually fits the parallelism here better, and and I think makes a better sense of the passage. But either way, the point is, it's not miserly. The Lord is announcing that he keeps his steadfast love for a thousand generations, forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin. Now, the use of these three different terms is just trying to make clear because those are the only three terms we have in the Bible for sin, that God forgives all of it. He he doesn't have this little category over here. Well, if you do that, you're okay. But if you sin like that, you're in trouble. God's grace is so amazing that he forgives all of your sin. As far as the east is from the west, so far has God removed your transgressions from you. Every single one of them. That's God's grace. This is the character of the Lord who gives us his commandments. So when the Huddleberg Catechism asks, but isn't God also merciful? It immediately answers, God is certainly merciful. In fact, the Lord is merciful beyond the wildest imaginations of those who are objecting to God bringing judgment. That's what stirs up this question in the Catechism. There are people who are protesting when you say that God's going to bring his just and holy judgment upon others, as he reveals in his word. They say, well, my God's a God of love. And isn't God merciful? Merciful God wouldn't do that. And so the catechism asks that question. Isn't God also merciful? And it immediately answers, God is certainly merciful. But the full answer the catechism gives to this objection is as follows. God is certainly merciful, 
but he is also just. His justice demands that sin committed against his supreme majesty be punished with the supreme penalty, eternal punishment of body and soul. Now, that's not just on the one hand. On the other hand, that truth opens us up to see just how deeply and profoundly God loves us. Because when Jesus Christ came and rescued you, God didn't say, no big deal. Yeah, he's got to kind of walk around and teach a bit and maybe be mistreated. Rather, the full weight of God's wrath against every single sin that you and I have ever committed was laid upon Jesus on the cross. You understand a mere human being couldn't bear that. Jesus is both fully man and fully God. Supposing that God actually created a second Adam that was a mere human being, completely pure in the beginning, and God sustained him in his purity throughout his whole life, and that second Adam was to die for your sin. Do you know where he'd be right now? He would be in hell. The just penalty for your sin is eternal punishment. But because Jesus is not only a true man, but also fully God by the virtue of his divine nature, he was able to bear this extraordinary eternal punishment, not just for your sins, but the guilt of all of God's people in a finite period of time. Beloved, though, we can't even contemplate how horrible that was for him to endure. This is love. Not that we love God, but that he loved us. And as God come in the flesh, he gave his life for us. Please note that the justice of God that is referred to in the catechism is not simply a bit of theologizing. Look again at verses 6 through 8 with me. The Lord passed before him and proclaimed, The Lord, the Lord, a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness, keeping steadfast love for thousands, forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin, but who will by no means clear the guilty, visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children and the children's children to the third and the fourth generation. Beloved, Almighty God will never simply clear the guilty, as though he does so with a wave of his hand, the only people who will ever be forgiven are those for whom Christ died. Well, there can only be one response to that sort of sacrificial love and grace. And Moses quickly bowed his head toward the earth and worshipped. Beloved, amazing grace does not nullify the law of God. The law of God serves our relationship with him and God's amazing grace leads us to worship. And God is revealing himself to us here that we would know him in his character, in his beauty. See, those who worship an unknown God worship out of a sense of duty or perhaps out of a sense of fear. But you know your God. He has revealed himself to us, yes, in this beautiful passage, but also even more fully in Jesus Christ. For God who said, let light shine out of the darkness, has shown in our hearts to give us the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face 
of Jesus Christ. So let us stand in awe of our God, and by his grace let us worship him in spirit and in truth. Amen.